Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Straight ahead on the Insiders, he's a Midwest mayor with a challenge before him. And we do not mean his challenging last name. (laughs) Pete Buttigieg is here. He'll join us on his priorities while he's here in Iowa this weekend and also where he thinks his party is going. Plus, the environment is a source of worry for people like never before. An environmentalist will join us on the needed focus on this climate change fight. Plus, grab a tutor, your Rosetta Stone, your Duolingo app, or maybe that old high school textbook. Whatever you need, we're going to get multilingual in the Insiders Quick Six. Thanks for being with us. Welcome to the Insiders. This weekend in Iowa, we're going to see something like we've never seen before. We're going to have 19 presidential candidates all in one place in Cedar Rapids for the Iowa Democratic Party's Hall of Fame celebration. All kinds of stuff going on before then, of course. Then we'll have two more presidential candidates in the state on Tuesday when Joe Biden's here and President Donald Trump's here. Now, some have been saying that Iowa does not matter anymore. Just look at the campaign schedules. <laughs> Let's bring in our first guest, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Democrat running for president here, Pete Buttigieg. Thanks for coming back. Sure thing. Good to be with you. Good to have you here. All right. Uh, I was looking up here. So population of South Bend, about 101,000, right? Mm-hmm. Does that sound right to you? 327 million people in our country. It's a big jump, right? Yeah, that's kind of the point. I think we need more voices from uh, places that have often been neglected or felt left out of the political conversation. There's so many communities, whether it's an industrial city like my hometown of South Bend or rural communities or even some areas in, in the biggest cities of our country where people grow up getting this message like I did growing up that success has to mean getting out. And I think now's a moment where some of these communities that have felt left out need to stand up. This president spoke to communities like that, but in, I believe, a very destructive way, basically saying that the only way things could get any better for us is to turn back the clock. And that was the idea of make America great again. But it's a promise you can't keep because there is no going back. And I think having voices, especially in my party, the Democratic Party, having voices like that come from the industrial Midwest, come from those uh, those mid-sized communities, speaking to the smaller communities, is as important as uh, being able to connect in the biggest cities in the U.S. You described his message as destructive. Uh, as you know, he won overwhelmingly in this state. So why did that connect if it was so bad? Well, I think it was uh, basically an expression of the fact that the entire system had let us down. I know a lot of voters around here and around where I live who are under no illusions that the president is uh, a particularly upstanding character. They voted for somebody they disliked. And they did it in order to send a message, in order, in effect, to burn the house down. The message was that our politics and our economy have let us down so totally 
uh, even as some of the numbers looked good over the years, they've let us down so completely. Democratic and Republican presidencies failing us in so many ways that we just need to do something completely different. Now, I would argue this current president is making it even worse, and that's one of the reasons why he is remarkably unpopular, about as unpopular as a president has been in the modern age. But I also think he could absolutely win again if our party looks like we're just promising a return to normal when the old normal didn't work for so many people. And so ironically, one of the most risky strategies we could adopt as a party is to try too hard to play it safe. Uh, this weekend, before you get to Cedar Rapids, you're going to the Matthew Shepard dinner Friday night in Des Moines. Uh, Pride, Fra Pride Fest, the Capital City Pride Fest in Des Moines on Saturday is sort of taken on a level that it's never really had before. Obviously, you have all kinds of presidential candidates coming there, but there is there's just a lot more juice with it, if you will, a lot of more pre-interest, a lot more buildup. Um, you, you're, a, you're a married man here coming into this race. You're open about your, about your relationship with your husband. Can you explain to us what you think has changed in our country? Um, I remember a couple years back, Pride Fest was a much smaller celebration, yeah. right? Uh, now it's it's a lot more mainstream. It's just a lot. It's just blowing up so much. Yeah. What do you think is going on? I think two things are happening. The, the first thing is uh, the tide has turned so quickly on these issues uh, because Americans are realizing just how many of us are LGBTQ. Uh, and whether it's people coming out themselves or people realizing that a relative or a friend or a coworker they care about is in that category, it helps motivate us all to want to make sure that there's fairness and equality. And it's remarkable that a place like Iowa 10 years ago as we're marking this, uh, uh, this anniversary, helped lead the way on marriage equality. And it's come to be understood as a matter of basic fairness in this country. The second Public thing Public ahead of politicians on this, do you think? In many ways, yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you look at how it was, uh, it was considered extremely politically risky to stand up for equality just a few years ago, uh, only now for it to, to be a very mainstream view. And yet, and this brings me to the second thing and the reason why pride still matters, uh, we're a long way from being there, right? Uh, getting marriage equality did not end the struggle for equality in general for the LGBTQ community. Uh, you look at the fact that a lot of parts of the country uh, lack basic protections, uh, including Indiana, where I live. A lot of parts of Indiana, you could be fired uh, for who you are. That's why we need an Equality Act. We obviously see a lot of attacks coming out of this White House on trans Americans. And so Pride is, on one hand, a, a celebration of how far we have come as a country uh, in treating each other better. And on the other hand, it's there out of an awareness that uh, we don't live uh, at a time when, when everybody can count on being treated fairly and equally, no matter who they are, no matter who they love. You're going to get a lot of Joe Biden questions undoubtedly this weekend since you have 19 candidates here coming to the Cedar Rapids event. Joe Biden, the vice, former vice president, is not one of them. Uh, what does that say to you? Uh, you know, I'm really focused on our own effort, especially when there's so many of us, almost two dozen uh, Democratic candidates. It's not worth spending a whole lot of energy uh, talking about your competitors. We're running our own playbook. So far, that's worked out very well for us. And uh, we'll let the chips fall where they will for the others. Uh, will you talk about these numbers we're seeing on Friday that showed some disappointing job numbers, the 75,000. Obviously, economists were looking for at least twice that much last month. But when you look big picture here, we're still at the lowest national unemployment rate in the last 50 years or so. So how do you grade what's happening in the economy? It's kind of a tale of two economies. On one hand, we continue to see good top level numbers on GDP and jobs. And really, that's been headed in the right direction for the last 10 years or so. On the other hand, what we're seeing is more and more people feel like they're left out of that. And one of the reasons you had a so-called economic anxiety election back in 2016, because back then the economy was pretty good by the numbers. And yet so 
so many people were disaffected, disconnected, and feeling left out. You know, if you start the clock around the time I was born in the early 80s, what you'll see is the rising tide has been rising in our economy almost like never before. And yet most of the boats barely budged. Median wages for most Americans uh, have really flatlined since the 70s, even though our economy has become incredibly productive. So we're seeing all those gains from our economy go to a vanishing few. And we're seeing the jobs that do exist uh, become less and less stable, less and less secure. And for my generation, uh, a lot of people that have gigs rather than jobs, lacking the protections that go with being an employee versus a contractor, or go with being full-time versus part-time. And part of what we're going to talk about in my campaign is how to make sure that if you're working, whether you're working as an employer or a contractor, whether you're working 40 hours a week or 20, that you're going to be able to accrue the kind of benefits and the kind of protections that ought to go with that. In these numbers, I'm seeing that a 3.4% increase for personal income, though, that's pretty good, right? It's in, in the short term. So does narrow mean tax cuts are working? Well, when we do averages, uh, what we find is that uh, it captures uh, what's largely going to the few. Look, uh, most of these tax cuts uh, either went to uh, top earners or they went to corporations, which in turn are going to funnel a lot of their profitability to top earners. Uh, again, the, the median income should be dramatically higher than it is today. If you just, if we all got the same share as we used to get historically, of all the growth and all the improvement that's happening in the economy, uh, we should be way ahead of where we are now. And I think one of the reasons why there's so much unrest in our country, uh, so much distress in our politics, is that the economy is leaving people out. And as we look forward, these changes are only going to accelerate. We've got automation, we've got artificial intelligence, we've got the challenge of countries like China competing in new ways with us, not all of them fair when it comes to the global economy. Uh, and uh, especially here in the Midwest, well, whether it's places around Iowa or uh, the industrial part of Indiana where I live, uh, we've got to be preparing for a future where people in my generation are probably going to change careers more frequently than my parents even change job titles. Uh, can you address China and Mexico? We've seen the way the president is dealing this with his with his trade wars and tariff threats and such. Few would disagree that China's not a fair player here. The way they steal our stuff. We've had a couple of high-profile cases here where Chinese nationalists were uh, stealing seed corn, right, mm -hmm. and taking it back, trying to, uh, and they got busted for that. So cl clearly, we've seen something going on here. The president is saying, we've tried stuff before. We got to get tough. We got to do something like this, even though there's going to be some pain that comes along with it. Why is he wrong? Well, I believe that we do need to stand up to China in new ways. Uh, I may not be on the same page as some people in my party, but I regard the China challenge as a real threat politically and economically. But if you're going to deal with a country like China that is known for planning in a very long-term fashion, 10, 20, 30-year plans, that is extremely strategic and extremely calculating, you better know what you're doing. And all I see this president doing is poking him in the eye to see what's going to happen. And so far, the consequences of that are actually coming down on us. You know, the average American is paying $800 more, starting now, $800 more a year in costs because of these tariffs. Tariffs are taxes, and he's raising taxes on us when he raises these tariffs. And the thing is, uh, a trade war or even a tit-for-tat tariff fight is not going to make China change their fundamental economic model. What they're doing goes way deeper uh, than a question about who's importing or exporting more dishwashers. We're talking about a country that is getting ready to run circles around us in things like artificial intelligence and trying to change the entire playing field uh, of global economic and political relationships, investing huge amounts of money in other countries, trying to curry favor where America has withdrawn. The only way we can really compete with China is to invest in our domestic competitiveness. If we are disinvesting in education, gutting our own infrastructure, 
failing to invest in, in healthcare for our own people, we shouldn't be surprised that we start falling further and further behind when it comes to the sort of growth that a place like China is getting. And no amount of tariffs is going to help with that problem. So, would, so that I'm following you here, you're saying we, don't, we shouldn't really be punishing China, basically we just outdo them? Well, we should be ready to stand up to them, too. I just don't but think But how do that, we do that without uh, a tariff? Well, tariffs are hurting us as much or more as hurting them. So there's a little, you know, don't move or I'll shoot going on here. What we've got to have is something that's a lot more strategic. For example, when you look at the way they've figured out, uh, uh, you look at the 5G and some of these other technological moves they're making, uh, you know, the interconnectedness, the interdependence, they can weaponize that against us. And we do have to find ways, orderly ways, to decouple that. We have to find ways to hold them accountable in global institutions when they are breaking commonly accepted rules around, uh, you know, whether it's intellectual property theft or uh, other things going on with currency manipulation or trade. Uh, but we can't do that if we're not convincing at home, if, if, if we're not actually uh, playing according to accepted rules either. Or, uh, you know, just in our own society, living up to the model of democracy and freedom that gives us the moral edge over a place like China, where they're using technology for the perfection of dictatorship. How are you going to handle the health care debate in your party? So we've seen John Delaney, who's been in this state a bunch, uh, he did an op-ed where he's saying that this, look, this Medicare for all idea, it's bad policy. He called it political suicide as he tries to separate himself from the left of your party here. How do you handle that look, conversation? universal health care is popular. I don't know how something that's popular in this country could be regarded as political suicide. Now, we can talk about how quickly and how ambitiously we can implement this. Uh, I don't believe we can just flip a switch overnight and expect a single payer to work smoothly. Think about how hard it was just to get the ACA implemented, which is a comparatively conservative thing to do to healthcare. But I do believe that if we take a step, what I would do is a, what I call a Medicare for all who wanted approach. So uh, basically you're taking a, a flavor of Medicare, you're putting it on the exchanges, you're letting people opt in. I expect that it will be better and more competitive than the corporate options, and therefore more people will buy into it. And over time, it's kind of a, a smoother glide path to a Medicare for all environment, which I think is the most attractive destination. So kind of survival of the fitter here of the two? Yeah, because if, if the corporate models come up with a better way than they have in the past, so much the better. We're daring them to do it. But I don't expect them to do it. I expect the destination here to be a Medicare for all environment, and I think that'll serve Americans a lot better than what we have today. Uh, no doubt it seems like we're hearing health care a lot more as the candidates are coming to our state, but climate change, I've no, I don't ever remember a cycle where it's in the regular daily conversation like we have right now. Um, is there anything you've done as mayor that you can point to, hey, in South Bend, we've done this. This is why I, I can lead on this. Yeah, I mean, uh, in South Bend, we've done what we can within the kind of national and international framework. We're doing a greenhouse gas inventory. We're setting up electrical uh, vehicle charging por ports. We're doing uh, uh, building retrofits and help, even helping homeowners weatherize their homes, especially for low-income homeowners. Uh, we've even partnered with Habitat for Humanity, building net-zero energy homes, uh, because we know that the family will be better off with no power bill, in addition to having a, a better solution for carbon going forward. But the other thing about a place like South Bend, much like I is we've been on the business end of climate change. One of the reasons that climate disruption is getting a lot more attention right now is that we're beginning to see all these predictions that go back to the 70s. We're seeing them come true around us. And so climate change is no longer something that's happening decades away. It's no longer something that feels like it's only happening to polar bears or, or on the South Pole. This is happening in the American Midwest, and it's affecting farmers, and it's affecting cities. Just as it's affecting Florida cities with rising sea level and 
uh, California communities with wildfires, you can no longer, look, climate and weather are not the same thing, but they are very closely related. And we, when we see bizarre, once in a lifetime patterns in our weather happening year after year, I think it forces us to confront the fact that the climate disruption crisis is upon us, it's with us today, and the longer we wait to deal with it properly, the more we ourselves will be paying the price. All right, if you can hang on, we'll have you back for the quick six at the end of the show here. Sounds but good. since we're talking about climate change, let's talk about that next. We'll have a metro environmentalist who's up next to talk about why this is part of this everyday discussion, so much more than we can remember in the past. We'll hear from him next. What will be the issue that will define this 2020 presidential race? Well, a recent CNN poll of registered Democrats nationwide found that combating climate change is a topic they agree on most. 82% said a plan to address climate change was very important to them when choosing a presidential candidate to support. Now, in February, a Pew Research poll found that 67% of Democrats say that climate change should be one of the top priorities in Washington, D.C. Activists are demanding change right now. The Democratic presidential candidates are offering plans to do that. A metro environmental advocate says the time warrants this. I think the significance, we're really starting to see the impact of climate change and it's touching people in a way that it, it hadn't before. I mean, think about even in Iowa, it's been the wettest, wettest May in history. We have parts of the state that have flooded that have never flooded before and that have flooded and stayed underwater. We had in the Des Moines area, which has not been hit as hard this year as some other places in the state, we had an eight to 10 inch rain in hours. It's a, extreme weather is here and it's impacting people's lives in other parts of the country. It's tornadoes touching down, it's wildfires and and the urgency and the, the science is telling us that we've got to act. And I think that's really, uh, really motivated folks. One Democratic presidential candidate is making fighting climate change his main campaign issue. He's Washington Governor Jay Inslee. He wants vehicles fueled by renewables or electricity, not gas, wind and solar power, not coal. $3 trillion, he would point to retrofit buildings to make them more energy efficient if he becomes president. Now, all of the Democratic candidates think combating climate change is vital. So does it make sense here for Inslee to make this his issue, his top issue of this campaign? Absolutely. I think it makes sense to do climate change as, as a thing. What we've seen in the, the past couple of, uh, for the past couple of presidents a president has an opportunity to do a couple of really big things. And for something to be a policy priority and be something that makes it into governance, it needs to be a thing in a campaign. And so it, elevating that issue and having that be a focus is part of how this gets done and we actually 
address the magnitude of the problem when we have our next president. And now we will see if this thing can become the thing that makes him the nominee or if we see others perhaps talk about this more. Now, D.C. is quickly getting behind Teresa Greenfield, Democratic campaign for the U.S. Senate. Emily's List, that group that supports Democratic women who support abortion rights, already endorsed Greenfield. So did the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, as did Democratic presidential candidate Kirsten Gillibrand. When we come back here, how Greenfield is already thinking ahead to her Republican opponent here, potentially, U.S. Senator Joni Ernst, and relying on a rural background to do it. Teresa Greenfield didn't talk much about her Windsor Heights real estate business in her first campaign ad in the Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate. In fact, she didn't really mention that at all specifically. Instead, she put most of her focus on her rural upbringing, much like Republican Joni Ernst did back in 2014. Ernst's Make em Squeal ad put her on the national stage and into the U.S. Senate. I'm Joni Ernst. I grew up castrating hogs on an Iowa farm. So when I get to Washington, I'll know how to cut pork. That was Joni Ernst's rural Red Oak Roots intro to the political world. My parents taught us to live within our means. It's time to force Washington to do the same. Ernst promised that since she was raised right, she'd take better care of your money in D.C. than those other politicians. And I approve this message because Washington's full of big spenders. Let's make them squeal. And that message helped take her to Washington. Some call this flyover country. Way too many in Washington fly over it and forget about it. Well, my family was into a different kind of flying. My dad was a crop duster, and farming was our way of life. Teresa Greenfield is also looking back to the farm. She grew up in Minnesota and later moved to Iowa. But like Ernst, she's pushing this rural upbringing. I'm Teresa Greenfield, and I remember flagging, tanking, and mapping the fields. And at 16, negotiating with our neighboring farmers. One farmer even refused to deal with me because I was a girl. Hogs also star in her video, but this time there's not the threat of castration. They do hope, though, to make a sharp contrast. You don't stop giving people a hand up so you can give a hand out to the super wealthy and the special interests. Greenfield's first primary campaign ad sets up what she hopes will be the general election matchup next fall. Listen, folks, she didn't castrate anyone. She cast her vote to let the corporate lobbyists keep feasting, like hogs at the trough. Two Iowa women. I'm Joni Ernst. Raised on the farm. I'm Teresa Greenfield. Both want to represent the entire state in Washington, hoping a rural background gets them there. Now, if you grow up on the farm, you know how to build, hammer, repair things, and a lot of other things, right? We come back, this new statewide effort to convince more people to go into the construction trades before companies have to give up on Iowa because there aren't enough skilled workers here to hire.
Hammer time. Remember that? MC Hammer had the moves to make You Can't Touch This a number one hit back in 1990. Well, these days, Iowa's construction industry says its number one problem is that not enough people want to use a hammer or many other tools to make a living anymore. 600,000 workers left the construction industry nationwide during the Great Recession, and the industry has not been able to replace them as workers have been able to find other careers. An Iowa group says carpenters, plumbers, and other skilled employees are badly needed right now and could slow the industry's work in the future if something doesn't happen. There's not one that is fully staffed. Uh, it's across the board when you're looking at that skills gap and it's, it's ever increasing. We are seeing more people retiring and we're just not filling uh, the, uh, those, those positions as quickly as we necessarily need. And this, I will tell you, um, we are the building chapter of the Associated General Contractors of America and they recently conducted a survey and it showed 77% of contractors, their biggest issue and their need is filling those skills, those uh, trades positions and you know, alleviating, the, alleviating that skills gap. The master builders of Iowa decided to try something. It set up a $5 million endowment. The hope is to get young people and others looking for a career change to join the construction industry. MBI Works, as it will be called here, would team up with nonprofits and others looking for some good ideas for awareness here to try to eventually increase the number of people in the construction industry workforce. The growth uh, over these last number of years has has been extreme has been going extremely well. However, the labor force aspect and the skills gap continues to shrink. And um, our concern is that if we're not being more proactive from an industry perspective, um, the matters are only going to get worse. And you know, contractors are very creative by nature. However, um, that skills gap and that need for to be able to uh, to basically staff projects, I think is going to potentially has impacts on our, our viability from an economic development standpoint, our ability to remain competitive, both both in the, this region but also nationally and internationally in that regard. Um, the last thing we want is when Director um, uh, Debbie Durham is out looking for to bring people or bring companies into Iowa but our ability to turn projects around and provide the infrastructure needed, um, if we can't compete in that realm, um, we, I think we're, we're looking for problems in the future. So now we will see when they start giving these things out at the end of the year, if they can start getting more people into the field. All right, when we come back, a seven language challenge, the full Grassley challenge, a prediction and more. As Mayor Pete Buttigieg takes the Insider's Quick Six next. The mayor's back as we do the insider's quick six. Question one, mayor. Democrats have done reasonably well in our state in more urban areas. Des Moines, Iowa City, the Northeast up around Cedar Rapids. Will you be a statewide candidate and how? 
Absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking forward to visiting uh, different areas of the state uh, that are not necessarily known for being very democratic. I think that's really important. You know, my, my introduction to this state uh, as a volunteer in 2008 knocking on doors for uh, Barack Obama was in uh, Decatur, Union, Ringgold counties. Uh, I know there are a lot of communities uh, uh, across this state that are uh, very strong Obama-Trump swing counties. And I think that's a big part of where we need to speak to. Okay, question two is the test of that then. We have this thing called the full grassley. You familiar with it? that Chuck Grassley does, you got to go to all 99 counties. Will you make it like that before the caucuses? Uh, I can tell you I'll do my best. All right. Uh, question three, did you graduate with college debt? Uh, no. Uh, thankfully, uh, I had a scholarship that allowed me to attend Oxford, uh, and uh, I had a combination of prizes, scholarships, and, uh, uh, and my parents saving up hard and me doing what I could uh, working to get me through undergrad. So uh, we're carrying a lot of college debt as a household, uh, thanks to Chastin's <laughs> decision to be a teacher. You're married uh, but, into debt. Uh, uh, yeah, what's, what's mine is his, and what's his is mine, including debt. All right, uh, question four. Uh, we're going to see how well I do on this. Uh, if I'm researching you right, you speak seven languages. Some better than others. Correct. Let's go for All right, it. I'm going to attempt to do this. Ooh. This is probably unfair. Can you say hello, Iowa, and all seven? Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. French. And can you please tell us the language before you do it? Yeah, all right. In, in, in French, it'd be bonjour, Iowa. Okay. Uh, in Maltese, it'd be saha, Iowa, or merhaba, Iowa. Uh, in uh, uh, Arabic, kind of depends on the time of day, but uh, if it was the morning, you'd say sabah al-khair, ya Iowa. Um, Spanish, it'd be buenos dias, Iowa, I guess. Um, uh, I think they're D-A-R-I, how do you pronounce it? Oh, Dari, yeah. Okay, yeah, Dari, sorry. Dari. I'm pretty rusty on my Dari, but uh, you could say Sobekher, uh, Iowa. All right, I think that was all seven. We, we figure you can say it in English. All right, question five. Um, you're still relatively a honeymooner here, right? But now you're running for president. This is a kind of a personal question, but does it mess up any plans you and your husband have for the future about being a dad one day? Well, it certainly doesn't make it easier. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, we're trying to balance our professional and personal lives. And uh, I guess that's true for everybody who's running. Uh, the, the thing about uh, running for president, and I suppose the thing about having kids, too, is that there's no obvious easy time. Uh, but uh, we'll do our best to, to balance those and all the other things we care about in life. All right. And finally, your prediction. Uh, I predict that by the end of the next decade, uh, the United States will not have 50 states. How many will we have? Well, uh, hopefully D.C., potentially oh, okay. Puerto Rico, maybe some others. We'll see. I thought you were going to get rid of one of them or something. Oh, oh, I'd hate to do that. <laughs> I mean, if, if you wanted to merge, I guess they could, but that's not <laughs> what right. I had in mind. Fair enough. Mayor, appreciate the time. Safe travels. Thank, Thank you. you. Let's stay connected throughout the week. We'll see you next week for the Insiders. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.